There comes a point where everybody knows, holy cannoli, these currencies have no value. None. Zero. Get me out of here. You know, give me something else. Give me something that doesn't represent a claim that's run by a government that's completely, utterly devoid of morals and out of control. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am now using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And you know what? We're coming up to a year and I've still not sold a single sat through Gemini. I am only buying Bitcoin. I am a hodler. That's all I'm doing. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did, all you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please do head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have my new sponsor to the show, which is Level, a company finally delivering on the promise of a Bitcoin bank. Yes, a bank on your phone where you can deposit, spend, and hold Bitcoin. And you can also do this alongside a traditional dollar checking account. You can deposit your payroll into your account as a US user, and you can even spend your Bitcoin from your account via your MasterCard debit card. I have been testing it out. I've been playing with the app, and it is everything I've ever wanted from personal banking. And there's so many more updates coming. They've got some big updates coming in February, so keep an eye out for that. Now, if you do want to find out more, if you want to go and check it out, please head over to Level, which is LVL.co, or search for Level, which is LVL, in the Google or Apple app stores. Also, we have Sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming, because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are well into the football season, and you know what? Things are going all right. It's been a pretty good season so far for Liverpool. Tottenham struggling as ever. We always like it that way. Now, if you are interested in football, if you do want to make a bet, and if you want to use your Bitcoin, then sportsbet.io is the place to go. But they don't just cover football. They also cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S P O R T S bet.io forward slash promotions. Next up is Compass Mining, and Compass aren't just a sponsor. I'm a customer of theirs, and I am mining Bitcoin with them. Do you know what? I've been mining for over three months with them now. I mined about 0.4 Bitcoin, which is pretty cool. I'm going to try and do updates on this every month. But with the price of where Bitcoin is, I'm approaching having, I think, about a third of my mining equipment paid off. I love that I'm mining again, because Compass has made it accessible to anyone as a Bitcoiner to get out there and start mining and contribute to the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded and anyone can do it. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility and Compass does everything else for you. Now, if you want to find out more, if you want to start mining, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Let's talk, uh, let's do what we got to do and then we can talk football. Okay, Excellent. There's a lot to do, but how are you, Lawrence? Good to see you. Again. I'm good, thank you. Nice to see you as well. Happy New Year. Yeah, good. Happy New Year, and good to see you, Greg. I'm, you know, I was trying to get back and doing all these always and in person, and uh, yeah, Danny, my producer, reached down. He's like, "Dude, have you read this thread?" I was like, "No," and he sent it to me, and he's like, "You've got to do a show about this." I was like, "I can't fly out tomorrow." He's like, "Do it remotely." He said, "Get Greg on, get Lawrence on, talk about this." Yeah. I was like, "Okay." So here we are. It's uh, epic stuff. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's like, I don't know how to read it all. Um, right, thinking of the listeners, we're going to go with the listeners first. I always get you to do this, Greg. I know it's a bit annoying, but uh, we're going to go through like the craziness that happened last week. Um, can you just do the basics again? Can you explain the role of the bond market and how it's kind of changed over this last two years? Certainly. Well, thanks for having me, Peter and uh, Lawrence or Larry. Uh, great to see you again. I'm looking forward to this Perfect. podcast. I think we're going to have a, a good one. But yeah, so here's gentlemen and ladies. Uh, essentially, what is a bond? It's a contract that pays a 
series of coupons over the life of the contract, typically semi-annual coupons. And that contract is set at a price of 100 cents on the dollar or par at the outset. But because of interest rates, which are impact impacted by things like inflation expectations or credit quality concerns, the price of that bond will change over the life of the contract. It doesn't mean you don't get your $100 back at maturity. What it does mean is that if the coupon is lower than the prevailing yield in the market, the price of the bond falls to compensate for new buyers of the bond that get their return at maturity, which is if you buy something, for example, at 97% of par, at maturity, it's worth 100% of par, provided there's no default. And accordingly, your yield on that instrument changes so that it's different from the coupon on the contract. When a bond is issued, that comp that coupon generally reflects the the prevailing market yield. And that's why a 1.75% US 10-year will be issued at the current price of par. But let's say the price of that, or excuse me, the yield in the markets change so that the 10-year starts to yield 2.75%. The price of your bond will fall by about 8% of its face value so that the $92 over time makes up for the loss in the coupon, the, un, the below market coupon. If everything makes sense from that basis, remember this, when interest rates go up, bond prices go down and the reverse is true. When interest rates go down, bond prices go up. But interest rates have been going down and bond prices have been going down. Interest rates lately, over 40 years, have been going down from a level of 14% when I first started trading bonds in the 1980s. The 10-year U.S. Treasury yield was 14%, and it went down to as low as under 1%. But now, the 10-year yields 1.75%, which means any bond that was issued with a 1% coupon has incurred a mark-to-market loss, right? Because the 1% coupon is too low to compensate those other buyers that could buy bonds at a 1.75% yield. So that's how the market continually reprices, Peter, because every single day, the level of interest rates changes, again, due to, for example, today. We had an inflation number, which was 7% year over year. That's 7%. Well, that's 7% inflation. If you believe that to be the correct inflation number, and we can get into that argument, that means that if you buy a bond with a 1.75% yield and inflation is 7%, you're actually earning negative 5.3% in what's called real terms, right? You're losing money because of inflation by owning a bond contract that only pays you 1.75%. Right. Okay. One more question, then I've got something for you, Lawrence. Um, what, what do bond prices tell you about what's going on in the market? Like, what do they tell you about risk? Well, let's assume there was no Fed purchasing of, at you know, historically $120 billion of bonds a month. Open market interest rates where there's no elephant in the room, is the basis for setting everything from risk uh, um, return uh, metrics in the equity market. Because the proverbial risk-free rate is defined as the U.S. Treasury yield curve. Now, it's not truly risk-free, but if you read your Text, economics textbooks, they always say the risk-free rate of return. The U.S. Treasury is a very solid credit. It 
typically sets the base level of return requirements amongst all other asset classes. So equities, since they are more risky than debt, require higher returns than what you can earn in open market, free uh, treasury markets. I will go on record as saying the current markets are not free. There is manipulated rates because of the Fed purchasing a bunch of bonds. There's manipulated rates because of um, uh, yield curve control in various countries. So all of this goes into setting the base return that's required on the quintessential risk-free asset, which is typically the central bank uh, obligations of a various country. Uh, you get negative yielding bonds in the in in the UK or sorry in in Europe. We talked about that on your last show. That makes no sense to me. A bond then, when it has a negative yield, implies that it's not actually an asset or an investment. It's a liability because you're guaranteed to lose money. I don't can't explain it. Never thought in my lifetime I'd experience experience negative yielding bonds. But these are some of the uh, shenanigans that are taking place in the markets today because of central bank interference. And so, Lawrence, what's the role of the Fed in all of this? Like, how much influence do they have over rates or how much influence do they have over this? Well, <laughs> a lot. I mean, because they, um, you know, they set rates and they jawbone and they create expectations. I mean, you know, let me just highlight, uh, Greg did a really excellent summary there of what's going on. And I'd, I'd like to just put a couple of exclamation points around it. I mean, the last time inflation was where it is today, which was back in 1982, the 10-year yield was 14%. The 10-year yield today is 1.75%, which is up enormously from the 1.5 that it was at at the end of the year. So it's up 17% in a week and a half, right? And, and the fact of the matter is the negative, I mean, I think people listening should just understand how far outside the boundaries of normality and how outrageous these prices are. Because literally, if you buy a bond today with a negative real yield of 5.3, as Greg said, you know, and you hold it for 10 years, inflation stays the same. And that's, of course, an assumption that everyone has to make their, their own determination what they think will happen with inflation. Let's say inflation stays the same, doesn't get worse, doesn't get better. You're going to lose half your purchasing power over that 10 years, more than half. I mean, it's just, it's outrageous. It's absolutely outrageous. And there's no doubt in my mind that if the Fed, I mean, part of the way we got to these low rates is the Fed made it very clear and, and they created what I call the Fed put, or what we all call the Fed put, which is to say that they've said they can't tolerate high interest rates in a weak economy. They want to have continual growth. And therefore, they've basically said, if rates go up, we are going to intervene. We are going to buy. We are going to do quantitative easing. And, and that has manipulated the price, as Greg pointed out. And that manipulation, you know, is part of the reason why people were willing to pay these rates because they, they could never go the other way because they, quote, unquote, knew that the Fed had their back. And what's changing right now that I think is so fascinating to watch is that it's becoming clear. The market's starting to think, hang on a second. Maybe they don't have my back. <laughs> maybe, maybe there's an issue here. And, you know, and I think that's because I think even the Fed has been surprised by just how hot these inflation numbers are. And I personally, I don't know how Greg feels about this, but I personally don't see them getting any better anytime soon. I think they're very far behind the curve. And, you know, I, I was reading some things this morning talking about how in fact, Jim Bianco, who we were, the tweet we were originally referring to that yeah. got this whole conversation started, had an interesting comment on his Twitter feed that said that he was hearing that the Biden administration was asking the Fed and saying, hey, we got to get this inflation thing under control or we're going to get creamed in the midterms, you know, coming up in, in you know, November 22. So, you know, the, the Fed has been talking tough and they might and, and there are a lot of us who think, well, they can't talk tough for long. They're going to blow things up. Now they put in a bunch of swap lines. They've done a bunch of other things to kind of hide it. You know, Fed guy on Twitter has a good analysis of that. They might actually be able to follow through on some of this tough talk. And What's the a reason, swap line? Uh, a swap line? Yeah. The Fed. The Fed basically. So, so the Fed is controlling the supply of dollars and the supply of bonds and the, and the flows of funds. 
and part of the, you know, this, this goes to the dollar milkshake theory that Brent Santiago so eloquently describes. Part of this goes to the world is short dollars because of Triffin's dilemma. All, all debt is dollar denominated debt. And so everybody, when they want to pay back uh, debt, they need to raise dollars. And so that's why there's naturally a bid for the dollar, even though I kind of chuckled a little bit when Greg said the dollar was a, a risk-free a risk-free security or the U.S. Treasury bond was a risk-free security. Because one could argue that ultimately, if you really look through all the, all the noise, it's not. I mean, look at the condition of the U.S. federal government. But, but the point is, for the sake of argument, yes, it's risk-free because they can always print more. As Greenspan said, they will never nominally default because they can always print more money. And so what happens is when you have one of these crises, when, you know, the, like we had in March of 2020 or like we had in 2008, when things start to go pear-shaped and the markets start to get disrupted, everybody needs dollars. And that's why they have to print like crazy. And that the part of the way they do that is they pr put in swap lines because a lot of the people who need dollars are in Europe or in part of the euro dollar market and they can't get quick access to dollars. And so, you know, when you're running a big Ponzi scheme that's based on continual dollar creation and you threaten to take away the future creation, somebody looks around the table and goes, hang on a second, the music's stopping. I'd like a chair. Give me a chair. And that chair means having access to dollars. But again, to have that access, the Fed's got to be willing to print them. And the Fed's saying they're not printing them. So all of this goes to the exquisite dilemma that the Fed has. That is, they're just horribly trapped, horribly trapped. They cannot move. You know, to the degree they tighten, you know, people, it, it instantly shows up in the bond market, as Greg has just alluded to. Well, I you think... Know, uh, I think right? I think you're right about the Biden administration. I think they're going to get creamed anyway. Well, that may be so, but that's a different matter. The mm. point is, <laughs> the point is that the bond market, the bond market is reacting very quickly and aggressively to what the Fed is saying, and of course, you know that may force a Fed reversal at some point in time. I mean, you know, we all know there's a Fed put, and the question then becomes, what's the strike price, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, does the tenure have to go to two? I mean, it's at one seven. Where is it now, Greg? One seven five, something like that. Um, one seven five, yeah. Yeah, I mean, does it have to go to two, two and a half, three? I mean, that kind of an interest rate environment would be pretty expensive for a lot of people. And or does or does this is it? We used to think the Fed put was tied to the stock market, right? The stock market needs to have a big correction, you know, and it probably to a degree is. But again, they realize they have a legitimate inflation problem, and so they're trying to address it. The issue is that by addressing the inflation problem, they may be creating another problem, which is a dollar shortage problem, and something else will blow up. So they push in one area, but another area blows up is what I'm trying to allude to. Well, it sounds like we're going to have to have some pain somewhere. <laughs> Greg, what do you think? I, in fact, you know what, the, the reality, yes, you should in an efficient market, Peter, but you know, going back to Lawrence's point, you know, the original Greenspan put was when the equity market fell by 20%, right? Um, the Fed had your back, they would come in and they would ease and uh, rescue equity markets. My personal opinion is that number is probably closer to 10% right now. A 10% fall in the equity markets would cause a uh, uh, return of quantitative easing. But here's the real thing, and Lawrence alluded to this. When the US dollar strengthens, because of things like uh, increased interest rates in the United States, which make the United States a more attractive place to invest than, let's say, Europe, that strengthening of the U.S. dollar causes emerging markets to get creamed. And eventually, the creaming in the emerging markets finds its way back to the S&P because ultimately the contagion permeates and, and circulates around the globe until everybody says, you know what, the S&P has to come down as well because uh, hedge funds out there that are getting destroyed in South America, for example, might turn around and say, I'm starting to short U.S. equities. So this is how everything's interconnected. But it starts with a strong dollar. It's my personal opinion that the Fed is painted into a box that any talk of meaningful tightening is nothing more than uh, uh, virtue signaling, if you will. Uh, there is no way, and let's go back to this, Lawrence pointed out the last time posted inflation was this high, using the original CPI formula in 1980, 
U.S. 10-year treasuries were double-digit yields, which means bond prices at the current levels, if we were to reach double-digit yields, 10-year U.S. bonds would fall by over 40, 40%. Can you imagine losing 40% of a risk-free asset called the U.S. Treasury? Oh my God, no. And that's only because of inflation. What happens, Lawrence, I, I postulate, when people understand that the USA really can default on their debt and all of a sudden start adding in a premium for credit concerns, this could turn into an absolute collapse. Now, the Fed doesn't want that to happen. I don't want it to happen. I will give advice that anybody owning fixed income securities right now is likely picking up nickels in front of a steamroller. They should not be invested in this risk-free asset because there is tremendous risk in these assets, as Jim Bianco pointed out. Last week, the long bond, which is the 30-year treasury bond, which yields 2%, lost 10% of its value. In other words, it lost five years worth of coupon return in one week. That's not very safe. I don't know who you have to be to call that safe, but in my, in my uh, uh, life, I don't call that a safe investment or a safe right. asset. And actually referring to that exact tweet, it lost, when you take both the interest rate and the, the principal, it lost 9% of its value Okay, and, and that was the worst one-week return in the 49-year recorded history of that bond. So whenever I see a financial event that hasn't happened in 49 years, I immediately say to myself, huh, you know, that's meaningful. Something's going on here. So, um, you know, they, they, they're It all they're happens, really... Lawrence, because Go ahead. it happens when interest rates have come from 14% down to close to zero in the right. USA, right. under 1%. And a bond is a contract, ladies and gentlemen, as I've said. And this contract, there's no subjectivity to it. Once you sign that contract, it is fixed. That is why they call it fixed income. And once that coupon is fixed, if that coupon is not in the realm of what markets should be yielding, the price of the bond has to go down because the discretionary buyer has the option of buying any bond in a, in a slew of treasury securities that will reflect open market yields and not the coupon on the bond. So yeah. it is the world's biggest market. There are times, and I'm talking about debt, total global debt is the world's biggest financial asset, but it's really misunderstood by so many people. And why is that? Because literally we have lived in a bond bull market for the last 40 years, because in 1980, Paul Volcker, uh, who was at the time head of the Fed, was fighting inflation and he raised short-term interest rates to 18% to fight inflation. The current right. Fed is not going to do that. They can't possibly. It would cause the debt balloon to explode. So they're going to try and massage things or, or whatever, right, Lawrence? They'll talk yeah, I, a good game. Let's see what they can actually do. I, I think the important thing to understand here is the Fed thinks they're dealing with a thermostat that they can just turn up and turn down and everything's going to be fine. And, you know, it, it, there's no possibility of, of a big event occurring. And what I would submit is that there's actually, they're dealing more with an on-off switch of a nuclear reactor. And, you know, if, 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 they, if they get it wrong, the damn thing's going to blow up. And, and that's... And that's why you've absolutely got to have, you know, a CDS on these sovereign bonds and sovereign currencies, because at some point, I mean, these, I, you know, it's, it's horrifying to me to watch what these people are doing. It's absolutely horrifying. I really think they're in deeply, deeply over their head and they, they think they can keep pulling it back from the brink. But, you know, if this one, I mean, at some point this thing could break and if it does break and it breaks hard enough. They're going to have to print until their eyes bleed, and and everyone's going to see it. I mean, we just saw the Fed balance sheet go from you know three seven trillion to you know eight 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 trillion or whatever it is. I mean, what's the next one going to be? We're going to go from eight to twenty four, you know. And then we're going to go from twenty four to a hundred. 
I mean, at what point do people go, Jesus, they can't stop. They just literally can't stop. You can't taper a Ponzi. You have to print, and you have to print in increasing quantities. And because you have to print in increasing quantities, I mean, we all know Gresham's Law. We all know what happened in Weimar. That's, there's, there comes a point where everybody knows, holy cannoli, these currencies have no value, none, zero. Get me out of here. You know, give me something else. Give me a house. Give me a car. Give me some food. Give me some guns. Give me some Bitcoin. Give me some gold. Give me some silver. Whatever. Give me something that's not this promise. Give me some liquor. Right. Give, give me some Eagle Rare Kentucky bourbon. This is what well, I'm, that looks good. Yeah, that's pretty I'm getting good, through it now. <laughs> yeah. You got me but, drinking, but, Lawrence. But, but give, give me something that doesn't represent a claim that's run by a government that's completely, utterly devoid of morals and out of control. And, 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 and it's got idiots sitting at the top of the Federal Reserve. I mean, these people are really stupid. What, what yeah. actually happened last week, Greg? What was like, you know, because Danny forwarded me uh, Bianca, Bianca, what's it, Bianca, the Bianca Research Jim, yeah, thread. Jim, James yeah. Bianco, yeah. And he forwarded me. But like, just so people are listening, what actually happened? Like, explain to them what happened. Basically, uh, well, it started the year is always when you reevaluate. Uh, so it didn't, it didn't hurt that it was the beginning of the first quarter and people have to set out a uh, investment strategy for the year likely. But what happens is people realize, much like Lawrence is saying, does it make sense that I own this fixed income instrument that yields 1.75% when inflation is running as hot as it has in the last 25 years, right? People will intrinsically look at themselves and they better say, why am I signed up for a contract or invested in a contract where I am guaranteed to lose money on a real basis, which means after subtracting out inflation. My uh, second derivative to that is the $100 you lend the Treasury today for a period of 10 years, they may well, not certain, but highly probable, pay you back that $100 in 10 years. But what is the value of that $100 in 10 years, right, Lawrence? It's substantially lower than it is in today at time zero. So a bond contract is a bunch of buyers and sellers, the buyers being the uh, lenders to the U.S. Treasury or any other corporation. They look at themselves and say, does this contract make sense in the context of inflation and credit concerns? Lawrence mentioned credit default swaps without getting too granular. The probability of default by the U.S. Treasury is low, but it is not zero. And you can just get an approximation of the implied probability of default by looking at something called the credit default swap market. Very simply, people are waking up to the fact that bonds may be far more risky than they've been led to believe over the last 40 years. So when you have sellers, because they say... It, it, the U.S. dollar shitcoin, right? So, but if you have sellers, if you have sellers that outpace uh, buyers, the price goes down. And when the price goes down, I mentioned, yields go up. So while it wasn't a large move up in yields, the fact that a 30-year bond has something called a very long duration, it's a mathematical uh, calculation. It's actually the first derivative of price that first derivative of price on a 30-year bond is approximately 20 years, which means for every 1% increasing yields in the 30-year, the bond will lose $20 in price. Holy moly. It's only $100 to start with. And the yield only went up. So last week, it lost 10%, right? The price was uh, you know, 9.83, as, as Lawrence pointed out. Let's use 10 that means very simply that long yields only increased by 50 basis points or one half of 1%. And yet the price of the bond fell by $10. Okay, it's only bond math. Don't get too confused. Bond math is very simple stuff. If you've done it for a history, it's a pricing mechanism. The longer the duration or the longer the maturity of the bond, the bigger the price change is for a given change in interest rates. So the long bond got smoked 
by 10%, but short bonds, one to three year bonds may have lost, you know, 25 cents to uh, as much as 55 cents sort of thing. Really not material in the short end of the curve, but in a yield curve that stretches out to 30 years, boy, that's where they get crushed in the long end. And Peter, to further answer your question, what, what made it happen now also is the fact that the Fed minutes came out. And the minutes were more bearish or uh, hawkish, I think, than, than people expected. I mean, and you know, there's growing awareness that the Fed is going to, for a while, talk tough and, and perhaps even act tough in spite of the risks of blowing up the market. They need to um, because they really need to try to, to put some cap on the inflation problem. And they know they've got a real problem. So, Lawrence, I mean, you, you say these people are crooks and idiots, and you know, I, I agree with you, and, and I, I feel assured that you're right. But what could they do? I mean, is the big issue is that we're not allowing a correction to happen. Is do we just need a market correction? Well, yeah, I mean, we we, we need we, we don't really have markets, so <laughs> so it's hard to kind of say you need a correction something you don't really even have. But I, I think you know, I think Stein's law applies. If something can't go on forever, it's going to end. I mean. You cannot continue to, you know, you can't taper this Ponzi. It's either got to continue growing until it, it becomes hyperinflation or it's going to collapse because it's it's way out over its skis and, you know, there's just not going to be enough money feeding the system. They're obviously going to try and walk some path between those two. And, and here's, the, here's the best case scenario for them, and I'm guessing what they're trying to aim for. They're trying to aim for high inflation, medium to high inflation, not over 10%, but greater than 5 and, to, and, and they're praying that the bond market hangs together, you know, and, and, and they'll push rates up to 1% or 2 or 3%. And so what they'll then have is they'll have a nice negative real rate of 3 or 4%. If they can let that go on for 5, 6, 7, maybe 10 years, you know, then the debt to GDP and, and GDP doesn't fall apart, then the debt to GDP ratio will get somewhat normal. And, you know, our system won't blow up. Um, that's what they're aiming for. Whether they're able to achieve that or not, I, I'd give it low odds that they can pull that off. Just because of all the derivatives out there, all the leverage in the system, and, you know, the, the awareness. One thing that's going on here, Greg pointed it out, we have had 40 years of deflation. I mean, there's, look, think about it logically. If you're, I mean, everyone can look at the inflation rate today and say it's 7%. Everyone can look at the bond and say I'm getting 1.5%. Okay, I'm losing 5.5%. That's a shitty deal. Everyone knows that. Why is anyone willing to hold that bond? Because they think inflation's not going to come back down. The, the consensus today amongst a lot of people on Wall Street and in the investment management business, wrongly so, is that the inflation is somewhat transitory and will eventually come down when COVID subsides and the supply chain problems subside. That's the consensus, okay? And they're wrong, in my opinion. And the reason that is the consensus is they're doing what all investors have done since the beginning of time, which is you invest looking in the rearview mirror. We've had 40 years of deflation, and there are a lot of deflationary forces. Technology is deflationary. The China price was deflationary. Demographics are deflationary. Hell, even debt's deflationary. So there, there are a lot of reasons why we could have deflation. I mean, Lacey Hunt's not an idiot, but... You know, one would also see that we've kind of turned the corner on that trend, in my opinion, and we've let the inflation out of the bag. And once you do that, it's hard to put it back. It's extremely hard to put it back. And that's the lesson of the 70s. And so even though they were increasing rates during the 70s, inflation was roaring. And I think it's going to roar here again. And so I think the people who are worst positioned today in the investment universe own bonds. And then, you know, ultimately, I don't think equities will do well either. Um, but but at least equities represent a claim on a business that may be able to pass along price increases. Bonds are just bonds. I mean, how Greg rants about this all the time. I totally agree with how anybody in any investment management professional could own a bond. It's just beyond me. Given what's going on in the world, it's it's like it's so far out there. It's, it's absurd. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BCB Group, who provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty with finding a bank, a reliable one that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. So I've moved 
all my business banking across to BCB. And you know what? I could not be happier. It is so nice to finally be dealing with a bank which understands my business and understands Bitcoin and isn't putting hurdles in my way. BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. And they also have this amazing fiat network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had some trouble with this. If you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. If you want to find out, then please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up, we've got Ledger the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you as a Bitcoiner to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017. It's over four years now, and I'm still using that same Nano S I bought back then. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And you can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up is BlockFi. Now you can get up to $250 in Bitcoin when you join BlockFi. They've launched their BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Card. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards Credit Card provides the easiest way for you to earn more Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every purchase with no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack sats with Bitcoin rewards and every purchase. But if you're interested in finding out more and you do want to take out that bonus, you want to get the $250 in Bitcoin, then please head over to BlockFi.com forward slash Peter, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com forward slash Peter. Next up, it's Casa, the safest way to store your Bitcoin. Now, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps, phishing attacks, there are just too many ways to have your Bitcoin lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again, because with a Casa multi-sig wallet, you get to take custody of your Bitcoin, but you only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets, ones which you get to distribute into different locations. And this is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more about this, I have been a customer for over a year. You can hit me up in my DMs or drop me an email. Happy to answer your questions. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. I think I asked Greg this question last time when I was here, but like, are US bonds now essentially junk bonds? <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> but, uh, you know, here's the truth. Firstly, if we measured true inflation using the original formula for CPI. Where we are, 15? As, correct. So seven is horrendous, but 15, which may be closer to the truth, makes things even more ridiculous. Um, what it requires, first of all, there are investment policy guidelines that are set so that these that many professional investors and institutions have to own bonds because that's what their investment policy mix is. But as people over time realize this might get foolish, surely they're going to think outside the box and say, I'm going to adjust my investment policy guidelines so that I don't have to own 40% of my assets, for example, in bonds. I use 40% from the 60-40 traditional asset mix with 60% equities, 40% bonds. But that takes time, Peter. Over time, though, there will be net sellers of bonds. I'm highly convinced of it. And a net selling of bonds means if the Fed doesn't step in and buy them, interest rates go up and cause havoc in the market, disrupt mortgage rates, for example, disrupt high yield bond rates. But as as junk goes, the USA is the best crack house on a crack street, okay? The other countries are in very, very bad shape before the USA. So my home country of Canada is in big trouble. We are not a high yield borrower yet, but I promise you that Canada will fail 10 years before the United States fails. Great, Canada will be the first G7, pardon me? Just let me jump in there quickly. 
Um, are other countries' bonds uh, struggling independently, independently because of their own credit uh, uh, quality? No, no. I mean their own uh, uh, factors that are happening within that country, or is there a oh, contagion? But is there a contagion effect from U.S. bonds has struggling there? But is there a contagion there as well? There, there is. Yeah. There has to be. So look at look. They have the uh, the countries called the Fragile Five. Okay, uh, countries like South Africa, um, countries like um, uh, uh, Russia. These are fragile countries that can uh, collapse because of. Uh, their own economic scenarios that are less rosy than the United States, things that uh, cause people to charge a premium on those bonds to reward them for the risk. Look, in my career, our Argentina, which is a G20 nation, has defaulted on their debt four times. Four. Mm-hmm. Like, think about this. And 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 yet, and now the good thing is Argentina. You know, Jock Mahler's is doing everything yeah, he can to uh, to bring uh, to bring uh, Bitcoin up, to Jack. Argentina. But think of it for one second: who in their right mind buys a thirty-year bond of Argentina when, in my life, no thirty-year bond has ever been issued and matured in Argentina? Well. There's lots of other countries that are in way worse shape than Argentina. Argentina's a G20, Canada's a G7, but we're hanging on there by a thread. Uh, Listen, if it wasn't for the European Central Bank, Italy, France, Portugal, all the former pigs, uh, so Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain, they'd all be up there defaulting before Canada, but they have European Central Bank backstop support. It is ugly in bond land in terms of earning return for the risk. And we joked about this the last time I was on your show. As much as Peter Schiff and I don't get along, I do agree with him on one thing. Uh, He called bonds return-free risk, not risk-free return, but return-free risk. So shout out to Mr. Schiff. Yes, bonds are return-free risk. I'm giving him that one. Yeah, great call. Who's, Who's getting screwed here? Is it the pensioners? Absolutely. If if you are a part of a, you know, you think about the guys, blue collar Bitcoin boys in uh, in Chicago, they're a bunch of first responders, firefighters and uh, policemen and women who are uh, pushing their investment policy committee to remove bonds or uh, lighten the weighting of their bond allocation and incorporate Bitcoin. It takes time, Peter, but it happens and it can change and then once a big fund like CalPERS changes their allocation, so do a whole bunch of other uh, funds like the Indiana State Pension Fund and the firefighters of Houston, et cetera. So everything trickles down. The biggest problem here is anybody who has a bond allocation is penalizing their pension and their future returns because those bonds are not paying you for the risk that your pension fund manager is taking. That's not good. I hope that it changes because it's not fair for the pensioners. But at the end of the day, it takes time to change. Lawrence, who else is at risk here? I mean, we've talked about the pensioners there. Who who else is at risk here? What kind of is it? What kind of assets are risky assets to be holding right now? Well, any any bondholders. I mean, I you know I've talked to people who go to um, traditional financial planners. Well, you know, I mean, the model used to be, or you know. Take a hundred minus your age, and and uh, you know that's your equity allocation, and you have the balance in bonds. I mean, and I know wealthy people who have a lot of money in bonds, and you know they're they're just going to have their their wealth is just going to melt away. I mean, it, it really is. Um, so yeah, it, it tends to be older people because older people own more bonds than equities. Uh, but it, yeah, I think the pensioners are you know a big uh, a big place that's going to get hurt. Um, you know, it's it's funny though. I mean, there to some extent, even all these parties are getting crowded out because the Fed is one of the biggest holders of the bonds. I mean, we're buying our own paper, and and, and by the way, that's the beginning of the end, right? I mean, when when you can't even sell your debt, and you basically have to sell it to yourself. I mean, that's the definition of kind of a Ponzi. And you print money to sell it, you know, or you print money to buy it. Well, gosh, uh, you know, where's the real value? I mean, who's, you know, I mean, once again. They can pay, you know, these bonds will not default because they have a printing press. They can print as much money as is necessary to make sure you get paid the money in nominal terms. The question is, what will the money buy you? That's the question, and that's the issue. 
And, you know, it's the Hemingway quote. I mean, slowly and then all at once. You know, these bonds are losing value. And as people come to see that they're losing value, I mean, I've often said that yield curve control would lead to, could lead to, the entire bond market saying, sold to you, Fed. You know, I mean, think about it. Think about it. I mean, I, I just don't get it. Why would you buy a 10-year obligation at 1.5 when inflation's running at 7? I mean, it's so crazy upside down as to be almost insane. And so I think that there's going to come a time. I mean, people do it out of tradition, and they do it because they're looking backwards, and they do it because... They have mandates, they have to do it, and there are a lot of reasons why people do it. But slowly but surely, they're going to do it less, especially if the 7% persists or grows. And as that occurs, the Fed's going to be faced with a choice, either let interest rates go up, you know, and then croak the stock market and the economy, and they might do that, or intervene and buy more bonds with what? Certainly not with savings. They're already running a 40% deficit, tax, you know, uh, tax revenues. I mean, it's amazing. We 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 basically we spend you know six billion and we only collect you know three three five or something. Um, you know they're gonna they're gonna do it with printed money, and again you know a crack up boom, a failure of a currency, hyperinflation. It all occurs when enough people become aware that the policy is and has to be to debase the currency to get out of this problem. I mean, there's no going back. We can't have a Paul Volcker. We can't go to 20%. If we went to 20% interest rates, the entire world would go bankrupt overnight. If we went to 5% interest rates, probably the entire world would go bankrupt overnight. So that's not going to happen. So there's no going back through you know, establishing credibility. We're way beyond the point where we can save this system. Now it's just a matter of are we going to die with fire, which is hyperinflation, or are we going to die with ice, which is a, a debt collapse and deflation? That's the only that's the only remaining question in my mind. And then the other remaining question is on what time scale? And, you know, I thought it was happening in 2008. Obviously, I was wrong. <laughs> 12 years is a long time. But, you know, they, they're coming more rapidly now, in my opinion. And we're in a fourth turning. And my sense is that by the end of this decade, it'll be all over. And probably within the next two to five years, it'll be pretty seriously over. What kind I mean, of shape do frank, you think will be frank, in this? Frankly, I think this year is going to be one hell of a year. I mean, it's... It's really, really clear that the Fed is the naked emperor. It, and, and there are a lot of little boys now pointing at him. And so, you know, that, that knowledge is going to spread. And, you know, the next time gold goes through 2000, you know, or Bitcoin takes out 60, 68, 69, you know, they're going to both move. And, and they're the fire alarms that say monetary debasement front and center. You know, and, and I mean, the other thing that's going to happen, I think, I think gasoline is going to be a big thing. Everyone knows what the price of gasoline is. And I bought, I filled up my car last night. It was $4.20, okay? I unfortunately have a nice car, so it's premium gas. But the point is, when we start seeing $5 and $6 gas, when we start seeing $5 and $6 gas prints, you're going you're gonna to hear some people howl. And that's coming because oil's at 82 right now, and it's marching. The oil chart looks fabulous. It's just marching relentlessly higher. So my opinion is, you know, inflation is going to cook these guys. And I don't know what the hell they're going to do. I mean, I don't know why Jay Powell wanted to be reappointed. I mean, he has to be one of the dumbest men in the world. I mean, if I were in that job, I'd have gotten out of there so damn fast, your head would have spun. I said, thank you very much. You know, go. I'll, I'll hit the lecture circuit. I'll write a book. I'll call myself a hero. I mean, thank you. know, Bernanke, I mean, all those guys. I mean, when you're in that seat, you know, he's going he's gonna to be the guy, I think, who takes the blame when this whole thing comes undone. Now, the interesting thing with everything Larry said, uh, I think to a man, a person on this podcast, so none of us want this to happen, though, right, gentlemen? We do not want oh, the horrible. system to unravel. No. You, you cannot possibly want that. So there is a solution. Yes. And we've talked about what that solution is. That solution is a Bitcoin standard or a parallel network that operates as your savings account and the fiat currency is your checking account. And you use the fiat currency for things like international trade and avoiding barter. But you don't store your value in your checking account. You store your value in your savings account. If the right. United States adopts the Bitcoin standard, which I think they should do, and I think they will do, then 
you can ensure that this network transfer rescues this horrible outcome, okay? And you can continue having a fiat global reserve currency and the global reserve asset will be Bitcoin, not U.S. Treasuries anymore, but Bitcoin. I completely agree. Isn't there a risk though, Greg, that if uh, if the equity markets drop, that Bitcoin still correlates with the equity markets and the Bitcoin itself could drop? You don't think so? No question it could drop, but here's the reality. And I've tried to explain this and, you know, the best thing I can describe Bitcoin as, as it is credit protection on a basket of sovereigns. Lawrence brought that up. Um, if you think of what credit protection is, it is a short credit position, meaning you are long volatility. Right now, Bitcoin trades as a short volatility asset. It trades in line with equities. Equities are a short volatility asset. But people haven't done their homework to understand what the beauty is of this instrument. It's only 13 years old. Most people don't understand what credit protection is to begin with, let alone what a long volatility asset is. But the smart guys out there, the Ray Dalios of the world, I promise you understand what a long volatility asset is. So it's a, it's a question of education. More importantly, it's a question of the big money understanding this most beautiful instrument which will hedge all their other short volatility positions. In reality, you should own Bitcoin against the price of equities falling, but everyone trades them. Now, here's an interesting thing, and Lawrence might opine on this. Open interest in Bitcoin futures just reached all-time highs. Okay, are there equity players out there that are short Bitcoin to hedge their long equity positions. I guarantee you they are. Oh, absolutely. And that's what's called hedged and wedged, okay? You are in an inverted trade and you're gonna get your face ripped off when the world (laughs) understands that Bitcoin is actually insurance. And everyone who's short insurance now needs to not only cover their short, but actually go out there and buy insurance as well. It'll create what I called in a Bitcoin magazine article that I wrote with Seb Bunny, the gamma squeeze on the Fed put. Bitcoin is a put on the Fed put. It's the most beautiful option instrument ever designed. It has no theta, which means no time expiry. It is actually a long volatility asset. And the gamma squeeze on the Fed put means the Fed central bank is also going to have to be a buyer of Bitcoin. Yeah, it will be a face-ripping rally yeah. that will make your eyes bleed. Yeah, and, and anyone, it's coming as open interest. Yeah, anyone who's short Bitcoin is is going to get wrecked. I mean, they're just going to get absolutely, totally, and utterly wrecked. I mean, imagine a situation where Bitcoin goes to a million dollars a coin in the space of you know three or four months. I mean, you know, if I mean, it, people will just it will get destroyed. I mean, Caitlin thinks a, a GSIB will go down as a result of it because people who are on the short side of the Bitcoin trade don't understand what they're doing. And if they're if they're putting on the trade, okay. turn this on. If, if they're putting on the trade that Greg just talked about, they're insane. They're absolutely insane because there's a limited supply of this stuff and it could go discontinuous up and almost to the point where there's no offer. And... Um, you know, it, it, it will probably croak the financial system at some point. And so to be short it is, is, I mean, I can't imagine anything more stupid. I really can't. Oh, man. Well, listen, cheers. <laughs> Enjoy my whiskey here. <laughs> listen about that. Yeah, I mean, I mean it, look, it, it's going to be, it's, it, it's going to be a rocky thing. It's going to be hard for us. I mean, what, how would we all react if Bitcoin were at half a million dollars a coin? You know, quickly. I'd be I buying mean, another car. Well, right. I mean, it's it, it's messy. I mean, but it, that you know, car may not be safe in your driveway. Okay, so you might buy it, Peter, but it might not ever live a day to drive around the block. Okay, yeah, well, we all true. we all might have we all might have other problems. I mean, the, the sad, sad thing, and nobody wishes for the system to blow up. None of us created the system, and none of us, you know, um, voted for the system. But the system is what it is. And I think it's important to understand that the Bitcoin network is just a mathematical network that doesn't give a shit. 
and there's no there, there is no higher authority that can bail it out. And if there's more demand than supply, the price is going to reflect that. And if you know if people have written derivatives around it, and anyone who's short it, they're they're going to get wrecked. Period. Um, so, are there any historical precedents to what we're going through right now, where you can look back and say, okay, there was a similar time here, and, and therefore we can kind of predict what's going to happen? There's the difference now, Peter, is that the debt burden has never been this high, and we're we have never we have never been dealing with a debt burden, not just government debt, but total global corporate and uh, federal, provincial, every uh, debt included has never been this high relative to global GDP. So it is certain that currencies will debase in the absence of a crisis. But if another crisis happens, they'll just accelerate their debasement. So we want to create a parallel network. And this is my, I I wanted to uh, give Larry a shout out because gold bugs have known this for a long time. And this is the difference between our friend Peter Schiff and Lawrence Leppard. Who Lepard, who basically Larry saw a better horse at the horse track and adjusted his portfolio allocation accordingly. And that's the mark of a great risk manager, okay? When the information changes, that risk manager adjusts his portfolio or her portfolio position. So a shout out to uh, uh, Larry for at least doing what he can to protect and, and fulfill his fiduciary responsibility to his unit holders. On the flip side, Peter, who admits he doesn't care, right, on our debate, I don't care about my fiduciary responsibility. I don't think I'd put a whole lot of money with Mr. Schiff. But at the end of the day, there are smart asset managers out there that are making the right portfolio changes that will reward the unit holders. And we can get to a point again where you have a network transfer. And in a network transfer, you don't just flip a switch and forget the old network and hope that the new network survives. Our new network is only 13 years old. And I don't want the USA to fail because that means Canada will have failed 10 years prior to that. And I don't want that because I have three kids who live in Canada. So when is it gonna happen? This can go for a while as long as things are put in place as protection mechanisms. Every single fiat will fail. The USA will be the last and Canada will be substantially prior to the USA failing. You know, your comment's a great one, though. Let's let's go back through history because there are some similarities. Not There's nothing perfectly comparable to this because no Bitcoin existed pre this, but they almost lost it in the 70s. And the 70s culminated with the Hunt brothers trying to squeeze the silver market. Mm-hmm. And, and they had it. They, they, you know, they had, there was more paper silver out there than there was real silver. And they might've put a lot of people out of business and they might've, they might've won, but the powers that be changed the rules. You know, they, they basically went to the CME and said, we're going to change the rules. This is liquidation only. You cannot buy anymore. And that was the end of it. Um, you know, there, there was a, right. So, so, it, but how are you going to change the rules on Bitcoin? You can't do that. You know, you just can't do it. If everyone wants Bitcoin, the network's there. I mean, but here's a risk. I mean, they kind of did it in 1933. Okay, gold was doing it. You know, gold was the winning trade. And, you know, the government said, all right, you know, we've got to se- severely devalue the dollar because we've got a debt crisis going on here. You know, all right, it's illegal to own gold. Oh, and by the way, turn all yours in. Oh, and by the way, we're going to write it down 70%. You know, and, and so there have been other countries that have failed. I mean, currency failure, you know, a credit cycle leading to enormous leverage, leading to currency failure. This is not a new thing. I mean, Dan Oliver Murmican is in the process of writing a brilliant book about this, and I've read drafts of it. You know, this has been going on for hundreds of years, thousands of years. I mean, John Law ran something similar to this. You know, the French assignats were similar to this. I mean, Zimbabwe did something similar to this. Venezuela did something similar to this. I mean, you know, printing money is, is an age-old political game that has been played that always ends in tears. I mean, Voltaire said it so well, you know, fiat currencies always return their intrinsic value, zero. But, you know, the problem is that in the interim, they, you know, they happen to be what you need to use to pay for gasoline. So, you know, it, it, getting the timing right, and, and you know, Keynes had it right too, you can, the market can be irrational longer than you can stay solvent. So, so you know, you, you, gotta, you gotta time it right. But but to be living in today's world and to not have some monetary insurance, I mean, we all have to admit, this is the craziest monetary situation 
we've seen in our lifetimes. At least it's, I know it is in my lifetime. And given that, how can you live without having monetary insurance? And the, to me, the obvious and clear, there are three really obvious and clear forms of monetary insurance, gold, silver, Bitcoin. They each have different characteristics, different positives and negatives. Bitcoin's the fastest horse, don't dispute that, but gold and silver aren't going to zero. You know, silver has a lot of uses and gold's been money for 5,000 years. So they are all monetary insurance. They all beat fiat and they all beat bonds denominated in fiat. And that's that's the key takeaway from my point of view. And Lawrence, you were changing your allocation to any of these markets based on what's happening or any of these commodities? Well, yeah, I mean, I I, I think I, I've, I've said this in the past. I'll just be upfront with everyone knows. My PA is about 60% Bitcoin, 40% uh, gold and gold stocks, okay? The fund I manage, uh, everyone who invested in my fund, they bought a gold stock fund meant to hedge against monetary debasement. I, you know, against some protest of some of my investors, I convinced them that they should have an allocation to Bitcoin in the fund. They said, fine, just don't make it too big. Okay, I took it up to about 5% and then Bitcoin did a five-bagger, okay? So, so, you know, now it's about 25% of the fund. And, you know, if it continues to grow as a percentage, that would be great. I'm not selling any of the Bitcoin, but I haven't exited the gold business because the people who invested with me, they bought a gold stock picker fund. And I can create alpha there. I, you know, not, I mean, you know, the gold market does what it does and, and gold stocks do what they do. But I'm also a stock picker so that, you know, I, I had a stock recently that we sold. And, you know, in a market that was down 16%, we created a 100% rate of return. So that's a lot of alpha. You know, um, you know, or I'm sorry, the market was up 16% from when we did the deal to when we sold the company and we made a hundred percent return on the investment and the market was up 16. So it was 85 points of alpha. So, so I'm paid to do that in my fund, but you know, I can see Bitcoin. It's a faster horse. It's got a lot of beautiful characteristics. It may ultimately become, you know, I mean, the gold thing may fade away, but you know, that's not what my investors bought. And my first obligation is to give my investors good risk management, as Greg has said, and so, you know, personally, you know, I got more Bitcoin than I've got gold. What about you, Foss? What are you doing? If you uh, include the company that I'm working with as a Bitcoin uh, derivative, uh, which I do, I'm higher than uh, Lawrence, uh, but is, uh, again, that's, that's assuming that uh, my private equity investment is truly a Bitcoin derivative. Um, you know, I... I there's arguments out there that, you know, we have some Bitcoin maxis that uh, say you have to be all in. And they they actually question me. They say, Foss, if you're such a Bitcoin bull, how come you're not all in? And I answer very succinctly, if Bitcoin goes to the price I think it's going to go to, I'm going to do just fine. And I don't have to put all my eggs in one basket because I'm highly confident, but I am not certain. And that's how I've always managed risk. This is the greatest asymmetric return opportunity I have ever seen. I'll be very clear about that. But I still don't have 100% allocation to Bitcoin. It's not the way I've managed risk. And by the way, I don't need to have that allocation in order to gain the upside asymmetry of the trade opportunity or the investment opportunity. I think an interesting way, and I've been saying this recently, gold is a CDS on Bitcoin failure. (laughs) And I don't think Bitcoin's going to fail. But... You know, if if heaven forbid Bitcoin were to fail, the next best choice would be gold. And so I, I try to when I when I'm talking to maxis who have 100 percent of their money in Bitcoin and maybe they're not comfortable with the, they're not comfortable with the volatility. I'm like, you know what? You wouldn't be crazy to take 10 percent and buy some gold. Yeah. You wouldn't be crazy. I, 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 the 90 percent will get you where you want to be and the 10 will help you sleep at night and it's not going down. I, you do know? you know what? I've been thinking of, I've been thinking about that a lot. Because yeah. I am pretty much 100%, maybe 105% Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking about that 10% allocation of gold. Or just like, I've also been thinking about putting a little bit more in property. Well, that too. Yeah, property's good. Yeah. The, the only oh, issue there assets. is they can tax that shit. I mean, the property taxes, and, and as we all know, these governments are going to get more and more aggressive. You know. Yeah, pro- property taxes is different in the UK than the US yeah. and uh, Canada. But yeah, I, know, I understand what you're saying. Well, listen, I'm glad I had a bottle of whiskey to go through this because uh, I'm smiling away, but I'm smiling away at like some pretty uh, apocalyptic uh, potential outcomes. Um, but, you know, look, it will be what it will be. Uh, I'm with you, Foss, man. I think more people need to realize like Bitcoin is the uh, is the escape valve for a lot of these people. Um, but listen, appreciate you both coming on. We, we've got to get, try and get the three of us together. 
in person. I look forward to that. Yeah, anytime. We'll make that happen. Lawrence and I have a standing date in uh, in Boston. I actually have to pay a uh, a bet I made with a mutual friend of uh, of uh, Larry's and mine. Um, that uh, I bet on a yeah as as a, a bit of a quirk I bet on a, on the price of Bitcoin as a, at a closing level. He's a gold bug, a very intelligent gold bug. I may, I, I may add, not knowing him as well as uh, as uh, Lawrence knows him. But here's the cool thing: it's not about Bitcoin versus gold. Let's first of all, gold is still arguably. $10 trillion. It's pretty small in the in the global pie of financial assets, which is 900 trillion US dollars. Okay. Debt of that 900 trillion, debt is 400 trillion. Get me 10% of the debt market going into Bitcoin. 10% of the debt market is $40 trillion. $40 trillion divided by 21 million. Oh my goodness, there's your $2 million price target of Bitcoin. Yeah. Don't have to argue with the gold bugs. We don't have to argue with the equity guys. The debt guys are the idiots in the room, okay? If you are lending money, you are a clown, okay? You failed mathematics. <laughs> Understand that Bitcoin is your appropriate uh, new asset class. If you're going to allocate to uh, Bitcoin, you have zero Bitcoin, you need to get some, take it out of your bond po uh, portfolio, take it out of your bond basket and move it into Bitcoin. Get off zero, right, Peter? There's too many people in the world that still have zero allocation zero. to Bitcoin. And that is too dangerous. You know, it's, it's not all apocalyptic. This will get it. This thing will get sorted out. It really will. I mean, unfortunately, there will be some people who are naive will get hurt. But, um, you know, a lot of a lot of people won't. And um, the, the issues here will get sorted out. We will return to sound money. And I, I, I can see, you know, I'm very much, you know, in the Jeff Booth School of the world being a really great place when we get to the other side of this transition. It's just going to be bumpy. That's all. It's going to be really bumpy. But people get a couple of chances at it. You know, I mean, look, there were people at 69 thinking, hey, this shit's getting away from me. Now they got a chance. They had a chance recently to buy it at 41. You know, and, and this is the this is the case for dollar cost averaging. You know, just just save in Bitcoin terms. In ten years, you'll be really glad you did. You know. Well, listen, Foss. You let me know when this uh, date is in uh, dinner date is in Boston. I'll fly out wherever I'm. I'm going to come out. I need to be at that table. And we'll get together with Jason Lowry too, right? Oh, we, we'll do that again with Jason Lowry. Spooks are us. We'll do that. Well, listen, look. <laughs> yeah, listen, guys, thank you so much. I will. Yeah, thanks, guys. Really enjoyed I, it. I love what you both are doing for the community, and I'm so proud to be part of this community. So, yeah, we'll get together in person, and uh, I'll see you in Miami, if not before, okay? Right. So, looking forward to that. Let's do that. Okay, boys. Thank thanks, you again. Thank you. Good night. All right. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel, or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. 